as I was leaving, I wasn't thinking about all of the hotshot CEO lifestyle things that happen when you're running a company like Etsy. I was thinking about the, the people inside the company. Like at every moment, I was trying to act with integrity. And there were moments where I made conscious decisions that were less beneficial to me because I thought they were the right thing. And so, you know, I have a son who was five years old then and now is eight years old and is at an age where he's starting to understand things. And I feel like absolutely at peace that at any level, if I explained to him what I did, that I would be proud of what I did and he would be proud of what I did. Welcome to the Reboot Podcast. We are so glad you're here. I just need a plan. It's a common refrain we hear from anxious clients at Reboot. Something I hear from my clients quite often. Now, usually at this point, they are feeling the immense weight trying to figure out so many things, often for the first time. They just want best practices. They just want to know what the best leader would do in this circumstance, whether that be Bezos or Jobs or Musk. They turn to their board, their advisors, their friends, their bookshelf, Google for the answers, anything for the plan. They just want an answer that will relieve them from the pain and shame of not knowing what is right. And for the fear of being seen as an imposter, someone who doesn't belong in this role. As one of my favorite poems says, always we hope someone else has the answer. But it reminds us, you have the answer. You know who you are. You know what you want. Often in the fear of doing it wrong, of being seen and spotted as an imposter, the worry leads us further away from doing what is most right for us, perhaps the best guide. There's a quote from one of our past podcasts from Chris Savage, the co-founder and CEO of Wistia, that often shows up for me in times when clients are feeling like this. He said, if you follow your instincts, you follow your gut, do what you think is best, and you're wrong, you're okay. But if you don't follow your instincts and you do what you think others expect you to do, and it's wrong, it's brutal. That's the stuff that keeps you up at night. It's a scary place to be in the unknown. It's a scary place to be when so many look to you for the answers and to not have them. But the answers, they usually don't live out there. They live within. They don't lie with your board, your peers, Elon Musk. They lie within you because only you know what is right. Only you know what the path forward can be. And what decision is most aligned with the kind of company, kind of person you are and you want to be? Only you know what you stand for. So at the end of the day, can you look yourself in the mirror and answer the question, did I do what I felt was best? Did I do what I thought was right? Chad Dickerson hardly needs an introduction. He is a longtime friend, collaborator, and teacher for us at Reboot. He's currently serving as an executive coach a phenomenal one, working with CEOs, CTOs, senior executives to really help them grow themselves and their businesses. But prior to becoming a coach, Chad was a leader himself. He was the CEO of Etsy and led the organization from its chaotic startup mode through its early years as a publicly traded company. Now, Jerry and Chad are longtime friends, so it's really a privilege to invite you in to this conversation between friends. And in this discussion, they look back at Chad's time at Etsy right from his early days as CEO up to his firing. 
and how through all the chaos, all the turmoil, all the unknown, how he found solid ground as a leader. Enjoy. Reboot Portfolio Circles are an effective and unique way for VC firms to provide ongoing support and professional development for the CEOs and the leaders inside their portfolio companies. With our Portfolio Circles, the Reboot team partners with you to identify the CEOs or the leaders you'd like to support, and we take care of the rest. Each group is led by a skilled Reboot coach and includes six to eight leaders from companies inside your portfolio in similar roles and stages in their journeys. We bring them all together to support each other in their personal and professional and leader development. Now hear from Evan, who is a participant in one of our portfolio circles. My name is Evan Liang. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Lean Data. Most of the other CEO groups I've been in are very business-focused, issues-focused. We're trying to solve problems together. And the Reboot Circle is very different in the sense that we talk about the issues, but more around kind of supporting each other. And it's not around problem-solving but more around the CEO support from an emotional perspective. I think all of us need some sort of support group. You need friends and family. You can't do it all on yourself. There is a lot of stresses that come with the job. And having an avenue to uh, feel like you're not alone and get that emotional need that you might not be able to get from your team because you don't want to seem vulnerable as a CEO. So those would be the reasons I would say to check it out and to go in with an open mind and, and see for yourself if it's something that helps you. Overall, it's been a great experience. To learn more about Reboot Portfolio Circles, email us at portfoliocircles at reboot.io. Well, welcome, Chad. This conversation has been long overdue. I'll set us up a little bit. We're in uh, mid to late 2020, and we're having a conversation today with, uh, I'll introduce you, I never do that, Chad Dickerson. Uh, who is a brilliant executive coach and one of the dearest human beings I've ever encountered in my life. And uh, as I wrote about in my book, a broken, open-hearted warrior, if ever there was one. And, you know, in a past life, he may have been CTO and then CEO of Etsy, among other jobs. But that's less consequential than the open heart that's sitting in front of me right now. So welcome to the podcast, buddy. Thank you, Jerry. That's, uh, yeah, it's a real honor. And as I was thinking about the podcast, I was thinking about all the time we've spent together and all the transitions of all types. <laughs> and so I, uh, it's almost surreal to be here on the podcast. I was thinking about it uh, as I was thinking about our, our conversation today. And, you know, I know we want to talk about a bunch of different things. We want to talk about your life now. For example, I think that the folks who listen to the podcast would be particularly interested in the transition around Etsy and, you know, what life was like for you and what it is like for you now. And I think the now is maybe more uh, important than even that the then. But I was also thinking about the fact that, you know, you just mentioned transitions. And uh, when we first met, which was, what, 10 years ago, maybe? Uh, yeah, nine. Nine. Or close to 10, yeah. So your son, Kang Sen, uh, was still in Korea. Mm -hmm. uh, and you 
Nancy, your wife, for sort of navigating that space. Yeah. Um, our democracy did not seem imperiled. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, it did not. <laughs> um, and you were just beginning the journey as a CEO when we first met. That's absolutely right. And in fact, you might remember that there was turmoil at Etsy when I was CTO. And by the way, there's always turmoil. (laughs) Um, And I had come to you because it looked like we were going to have a new CEO at Etsy, which would have been the third CEO in my very limited time there. I'd been there maybe two years and nine months of CTO. So it would have been my third boss. And Fred Wilson introduced us and uh, said, maybe you should talk to Jerry, which I have a feeling happens a lot. (laughs) Um, And it's happened a lot. And I was kind of just like, what are we going to do? And um, I don't remember if it was our first meeting or our second meeting, but you told me, let me, you kind of sat back and said, let me, let me tell you why you should be CEO. Hmm. And uh, yeah, I'll just never, never forget that. Like that was a moment on your couch. Uh, I've forgiven you. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, I came home and talked to Nancy and said, you know, I'm going to throw my hat in the ring for CEO at Etsy and, uh, her immediate response was, I don't want to be married to a CEO. <laughs> I don't like, <laughs> and so uh, I told her I was talking with you about it. And I promised that I would stay the same for her, mm-hmm. that I wouldn't let that experience like change our relationship. And so uh, that's with your help. I think that's, that's what happened. Well, you're, you're very kind to give me credit for that. I, I'm not sure that being CEO would have changed your DNA at all. I don't think it would have changed. You're, you're one of those rare characters who uh, changes the job more than allow the job change you. And I think that that was clear. And, you know, hearing your story about that moment where we sat in my office and I, you know, hearing that back, I was like, well, that was really uncoach-like of me Um, (laughs) to tell you what I thought. (laughs) But, um, you know, to be fair to myself, you weren't officially my client at that point. Um, That's right. But (laughs) I, I think that what I saw in you was several things. One was the ability to hold the container of the purpose of Etsy. And that in the turmoil, because the potential and promise of Etsy had always been there. That was the paradox of Etsy. I remember Fred describing to me, he's like, you just can't kill this thing. It's literally, I think I'm quoting him. And it's like, well, be careful. And it's like, (laughs) and... You know, he was referencing the, the turmoil that you referenced and what my body sensed at the time, because it was really an intuitive sensing, was that what the company needed was ground and needed heart. Um, the model worked and, yeah. you know, there were changes to the model that occurred over the years, necessary changes. But uh, the, the internal conflicts uh, at the time, uh, were so manifest. I remember fellow coach Ann Mel and I coming to do an executive offsite with, I don't know, 25, 50 people. And we 
were we had just sort of internalized the culture of the organization and uh and there was so much tension in the room and this was the senior leadership and and uh people were trying to sort of make their way through it and to kind of make light of the whole thing midway through uh ann and i took off our top shirts and we were wearing t-shirts that said welcome to brooklyn with a week of killed and eaten <laughs> I, I remember that well <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh you know well you know what it felt like is that well that's what we were trying to reference was what was going on you know that internally at etsy there was this um deep and profound kind of of internal strife that just never seemed to be able to be resolved. And if I, you know, am I describing it well? Tell, tell, tell us about your first impressions, because right? I remember the clearing the beer bottles and your life is like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the day, so I was, I was obviously hired as CTO at Etsy, and the day I walked in, which was early September 2008, you know, honestly, like I, the team I was coming in to run, the engineering team, the leaders of that team did not want me there. So I was one of the people who was kind of hired in kind of against the team's will. And so the two founders, two technical founders decided to leave the company. And the going away party was the Friday before I started on Monday. So my first day when I walked into Etsy and, uh, you know, I was pointed to my desk. My desk was covered with beer bottles and just sort of the detritus of a party. <laughs> of my predecessors. And so the first thing I had to do was go find a bag and like figure out where the recycling was, get clear all that stuff up, like mm-hmm. wipe my desk down. <laughs> and then I remember looking, looking out into the room and like, no, like no one on my team said hello to me. Right. Uh, and uh, so there was, you know, we mentioned transitions earlier. I think that the, uh, I was welcomed by the board and the CEO at the time and that kind of thing, but it was, you know, it was a rough transition. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, one of the reasons like jumping ahead, I think that I ended up as CEO that in the ensuing almost three years, you know, from walking in from that moment, clearing off my, <laughs> the beer bottles from my desk, we just really focused. I just really focused and brought in other people to help me on really building a great engineering team. And so eventually we ended up kind of with code as craft. And I think there was kind of a strong culture built around engineering at Etsy and the pride in engineering and that kind of thing, which is really connected to the larger mission of the company. But it did start out very rough. <laughs> and uh, I was having a conversation with a coaching client recently who was maybe in a similar situation. And he asked me if I'd been in that situation. It's like, yeah, I, I ate lunch by myself in a park in Brooklyn, <laughs> like every day <laughs> for six months. And sometimes being a leader, you have to go in and fix things in a way that maybe doesn't make people happy. Clear out the detritus. Yes. So, yeah, I didn't really think about the beer bottles and everything being a metaphor for the work I was about to do for the next three years, but it, it really was. Well, you know, I want to bring you back to, to building a great engineering team because uh, I remember when I started working with the company, uh, there, was, uh, there was both the reality of the quality of the engineering team which was serious and yep. recognized, especially in the New York community. 
people sort of knew that. Mm -hmm. But there was also the sort of myth. And, and the way I would describe the myth was, well, at least we've got engineering working. Um, yeah. Meaning that there were other parts of the organizational culture that were challenged. And, and I want to come back to even this, this notion of great engineering. Mm -hmm. uh, what Etsy seemed to have was they had talented engineering capability. They had skilled engineering talent. But what I saw you doing and then ultimately doing for the rest of the organization was focusing on culture. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you made reference to code as craft, um, which you and I both know not only shorthand, but in fact, a sort of mission vision statement. Take us back to that. What, what, what is code as craft? What was it? What did it stand for? What was, what, what were you guys reaching for with that? Yeah. So, you know, one of the challenge you used the word culture, and one of the challenges that I had when I came in was it didn't really feel like the engineering team was connected to the larger mission and culture of the company, which is all mm -hmm. about making and craft. And some of that is the engineering team was overwhelmingly male and the customer base was overwhelmingly female. But I became a programmer as an English major who like learned how to code and had learned a lot about the concept of software craftsmanship and how there's a long apprenticeship tradition in software that's very different from most professions. Like you don't become an apprentice attorney and then suddenly you're out in court arguing cases, but in software that happens that way. So um, I thought about in kind of a chaotic environment, like how do you unify the work of the engineering team with the larger mission of the company? And I realized that those the concept of craft in software was a really strong tradition and, and obviously a, a very strong part of the Etsy culture. So um, we decided to start writing about it on a blog and having a, an event series and that sort of thing. And it's one of those things that once it was in place, it felt like it was in place forever. Mm -hmm. Like you almost can't imagine, or at least I can't imagine, you know, Etsy without Codis Craft and it's still running today because it's locked in so tightly with what it's about. And so as a leader, I talked with the team about your pride in making things. Software is the same pride that our customers have. And so you're doing the same work. <laughs> it's just a different manifestation of kind of the, this kind of human creative spirit. Um, and so that really resonated. And uh, <laughs> I remember during that time, there were, engineers i don't know if this is because of coast craft but there were even engineers on the team who took up knitting and would sit in a meeting and knit which was absolutely not only socially acceptable at etsy but celebrated <laughs> the challenge of that team in the early years and the years i was there was always about taking this relatively chaotic kind of disparate place and trying to unify it into one coherent unit and so you know, obviously working on the engineering team and trying to make it um, the best engineering it could be. And then when I became CEO, my job was to do that with the company. And it was really challenging coming from like a functional space that you're strongly identified with and, and running the company. Because I'll never forget in my first week as CEO, I immediately had unsubscribed from all the tech lists 
we used IRC pre-Slack. I was not in the tech IRC channels, but I told the engineering team, I'm going to step completely out of engineering. Um, but the first week as CEO, the engineering leaders came to me and said, you don't spend time with us anymore. We feel like you kind of left us. <laughs> and then some of the business leaders came to me separately and said, all you care about is engineering. <laughs> yeah. I want to, I, I want to go into the engineering versus the rest of the company yeah. conversation. Cause that was a big part of the work that we did. But before yeah. we go there, I want to actually take you back a little bit yeah. because your insight about Coda's craft reminded me of the hackathon attitude that you promulgated at Yahoo. Tell us about that. Yeah, I was at Yahoo from 2005 to 2008, and it was a, a moment in Yahoo time of extraordinary innovation. So, you know, Flickr was bought by Yahoo, one of the kind of first Web 2.0 properties and definitive in so many ways. Stuart Butterfield and Katarina Fake, um, you know, Stuart went on to start Slack. You know, I worked with Andy Bayo, who started Upcoming, and Josh Schachter, uh, who did Delicious. So, Delicious. like, all these people were percolating around. And... There's this idea that, which was true, that Yahoo had stagnated and it was really hard to ship products and uh, we needed to reclaim the engineering mindset of Yahoo and uh, be more engineering forward. So I, along with my team, Bradley Horowitz was my boss. We came up with the idea of a really large scale hackathon. And this sounds, in 2020, it sounds totally normal, like there are all kinds of hackathons. (laughs) but at the time, only small startups were doing hackathons and no one had done one at a large scale, like at a Yahoo scale or Microsoft, whatever. So the whole premise there was we really believed that if you gave engineers who are really smart some freedom to choose what to build, that they would build really amazing things. So uh, Jeff Weiner, who obviously went on to be the CEO of LinkedIn, was a big advocate for it. And so we, we ran these events, I guess the first one was like in fall of 2005, 15 years mm-hmm. ago now. And there was this extraordinary outpouring of just engineering creativity and product creativity. And, uh, you know, we brought in Jerry Yang, the founder of Yahoo and David Filer, the founder of Yahoo and engineers worked for a day and presented their ideas. And they were probably, you know, a hundred products or like beginnings of products that have been built. And so it was in a lot of ways, I think a kind of a belief in the sort of human creativity. And Jerry, you know, probably people who follow me on Twitter know like I'm really into music. And one of the things I think about now and then is when I trace my own career and my own interest all the way back to running the Duke Coffee House, the music space on campus at Duke. The thing that always excited me, whether it was Coda's Craft or Hackathon or putting on shows at the Duke Coffee House, was basically giving people the stage and letting them share creativity with others. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's kind of where it animated uh, everything I did. But the other cool thing that happened with the hackathons is people inside Yahoo, which is at the time was an 11 or 12,000 person company, they created because there were no formal teams, they created informal networks for that day. And even if, even if people didn't maybe create finished products that shipped you know, immediately the next week, they created networks and traded ideas that very much did wait, make their way into product. And so I think underlying all of that is like a real 
belief in people and their ability to do cool stuff for lack of a better way to describe it. You know, uh, you referenced before me looking at you and saying, let me tell you why you should be a CEO. I think that's, that's the piece here. There's that fundamental foundational belief in people's ability to be creative, to jam together and do something that's miraculous. Um, Let's go back to the transition, though, from from CTO to CEO. And even the, because as we said before, welcome to Brooklyn where the weak are killed and eaten. (laughs) Yeah. One of the conundrums of Etsy has always been this um, set of high beliefs and values. And then the sort of on the ground, rubber meets the road tension that that can exist. And so I'm remembering you um, stepping out of engineering. You were telling the story about how the engineers were feeling left behind and the business, the rest of the business, because we used to always inaccurately but appropriately refer to it as the left and right sides of the brain. Um, and, And that part of the work was to try to bring the code as craft you know, hackathon mentality, unleash the creativity to the rest of the business. Tell me about that. Um, Well, first of all, once you transition from CTO to CEO, you realize what a different job it is. Mm -hmm. And to some degree, I think, because, you know, in one day I was CTO and the next day I was CEO, to people around the company who saw me every day, it looked like, I was the same person and I was the same person, but what I needed to do was, was very, very different. So, um, you know, when I looked around, when I first started as CTO, there was a lot of engineering work that needed to be done. My first day as CEO, it was as if the clock set to zero, like all the work I'd done in engineering was still important, but it wasn't the thing that mattered anymore. Mm -hmm. It was engineering plus marketing plus finance plus people, HR, (laughs) all of those things. And uh, I've said this to some of my clients who are new CEOs that it's just indescribable. Like I I consider myself a pretty responsible CTO, but the feeling of responsibility at that level is really high. But when you step into the top job, it's not one notch up the ladder. It's like six, Mm. (laughs) maybe 10. And as a CEO, especially after you've done it for a year or two, there's a problem in the company and you're, you're just like, why is this happening? (laughs) (laughs) And, and you kind of look around and you say, Oh, like it, it kind of doesn't matter why it's happening. Like it's my job to fix it and to hire someone to fix it or, you know, all of those things. So it's just like such a different job. And just that, 100% 100% accountability for the company, like with no, and I know CEOs, some CEOs probably still blame people on everything. But for me, it's just, yeah, it's like, it's all on you. If something's wrong, like somewhere within your purview, you have to fix it. So, you know, immediately I had to, I'd been working there. So I think I had some advantages, but I had to assess all the different teams. And just like many of the CEOs I coach and CEOs you coach, I had to see like who was doing well 
like where I needed to bring in new talent. What was the order of the new talent? Do you need a new head of finance first? Do you need a new head of people first? Can you recruit both of them at the same time? Um, what do the people think who are already there? Like, do they want the jobs? Like, how do you manage those communications? And so immediately, it was what I imagine the first day of like a presidential transition would be like. And I'm not trying to go in that direction <laughs> for the conversation, but you've got a line out the door and everyone's got the sort of equivalent of the bill they want to pass or the initiative that they want to get started. And so there's, there's a lot of that, a lot of that happening. And so what I remember from that period, and I think this is good guidance for any CEO in a new job is um, while you're kind of looking at the team and making sure the strategy is clear, it's good to pick a few things that look like uh, nothing's a sure bet, but that look like things that you really need to do and give the resources to those that need them. So you can make a stand or take a stand about what's important and kind of get that work done. And so an initiative that comes to mind is, uh, you know, Etsy was kind of sort of beginning to start building a payment system at that time. And so in the early days of CEO, um, you know, Isaac Oates, who's obviously the CEO of just works now, we both know Isaac. I made sure that a leader like Isaac, who was an incredible leader, still is an incredible leader. I made sure that one, he got one of the best I've ever encountered. Yeah. Amazing. An amazing leader. I made sure that Isaac got what he needed. And so the transition is a really, that transition is a really challenging part because especially if you're coming from the inside, everybody knows you, but everyone doesn't know the extent of what you need to do. And, uh, you know, even then, I, I don't think I want to go into the details on this, but we actually had a, in the early days, a hostile shareholder play where someone was trying to sell some of a big chunk of Etsy stock to one of our, our fierce competitors. <laughs> so, I remember that. <laughs> so I think on my third day as CEO, you know, it sounds like it's all wine and roses and you're like sitting on the throne or whatever, but I was on the phone mm-hmm. with the person trying to sell stock to our competitor, you know, making appropriate threats <laughs> uh, to protect the company. And so there's just no, I think when you're a CEO, there's just no time to waste. There's a lot of work to be done and you have to like immediately start prioritizing around team and initiatives and uh, very challenging. Say the least. <laughs> you, you know well that uh, you were gracious enough to allow me to share a bit of your story in my book. And um, of course, you know, I tell a little bit about the transition, but I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. What I'm remembering is um, your nausea. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, why don't you tell that story? Yeah, and I'll, I'll tell a, a sub story as I'm getting to that. Um, mm. So in my early days as CEO, one of the things, aside from trying to do all the things I just described, kind of unify the company. One of the things that bothered me was I didn't feel like we were really measuring ourselves against some of the value statements that we were, that we were um, kind of putting forth. And so in, I became CEO in July, 2011. And in the, I guess, sort of winter spring of 2012, we decided to raise a round. And uh, at the same time, we were looking at uh, B Corp certification and uh, for those listening who don't know B Corps, I think they're pretty well known now, but it's the idea that you can do social good um, while running a great business. 
so um, I decided that I wanted to become a certified B Corp at the same time as raising the funds. So we would announce those on the same day. So one of the challenges for me, if you run a company and you're raising money and you're going to make a big value statement, you obviously want values aligned investors. You don't want an investor who doesn't believe in what you're about to do because it'll only cause trouble. And so to get to your point about nausea, Jerry, um, yeah, I had an investor to lead the round. It was an outside investor. And uh, I really liked our investors. They were all supportive of being a B Corp. Fred Wilson, Union Square Ventures, Jim Breyer at Excel, um, Danny Reimer from Index, all had signed off on it. But I got an outside investor, had a term sheet or a verbal offer with very specific terms. I'll never forget, I went and kind of closed the deal over breakfast at Balthazar. So we talked terms. It was very cinematic. I shook hands with this person. Then I went back to the office. The term sheet was sent and all the numbers were different. Mm. And uh, I called the investor and said, like, what's up? Like, we had this conversation and I looked you eye to eye. <laughs> we shook hands. And then the numbers I was getting were different. Mm-hmm. And the investor started kind of hemming and hawing and, and then like said, oh yeah, like, well, you know, we could maybe change them back to what we had said. And, and I said, no, this is over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like we're not, and this is at the end of a fundraising process. We'd already run a process and met with a lot of people, but I was so taken aback by the, you know, the dishonesty. And I was told, well, you know, this is how the game is played and all this kind of stuff. And so I killed the deal, um, killed the term sheet. And anyone who's raised money knows that when you have it all like wrapped up and you're at the end of the process, <laughs> the idea of killing it and starting over is, mm-hmm. is sickening. And so, mm-hmm. but to get to your point, I felt kind of a call to principle more than anything. And so I, I killed the deal and I had no plan B because I'd kind of shut off the other avenues because I thought this was, was going so well. So that's the story you're referring to because I went to the office or I was in the office when I figured this out and I, I went to the bathroom and I think I felt like, you know, I was like dry heaving and that is, is very atypical for me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But, um, you know, we ended up closing around everything kind of worked out and I'm still really happy about this. I didn't, uh, sacrifice the kind of core principles of like honesty and being straightforward that I wanted in the company, especially at a moment when we were becoming a B Corp. And I mean, Jerry, you know, my investors from then and, you know, Fred Wilson, I think is kind of an archetype of a good investor. Amen. He's a good investor because he knows how to make money with his investments. That's really important. <laughs> right. He's a supportive investor, but he also knows, you know, when to push you in the right ways. And so I wanted to make sure that the other investors I had on the board were as close to, you know, someone like Fred as possible. Mm. Um, And so I think as difficult as that was, it put us in a better position to, you know, go public the way we wanted to, like all those sorts of things. But it was hard. And I felt it wasn't a momentary sickness. I felt kind of sick for days until I got the deal worked out. You know, when you said uh, that was unusual for me, about the dry heaves, the only thought I had was, 
That wasn't my experience, meaning that it wasn't unusual. <laughs> I got a lot of phone yeah. calls from you. <laughs> Yeah, near, near dry and not so dry eaves. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe I'm just looking back with rose-colored glasses. Nah, <laughs> but uh, but I think an important point here, and we've talked this a lot. That was I've been CEO for nine months at that point, and you get I don't even want to use the word tougher. Well, you get more resilient because tougher is a little bit too. I don't think you want to get tougher. That just means you can repel right. more incoming, whatever that is. And I think resilience is the right word because you learn to kind of absorb and process things in a way that's, that's healthy. So I think, you know, I, I definitely felt sick then, but I think had I been in the same situation like a year later, 18 months later, it would have been a lot easier. So I think, and I see this in my clients and I know you do too. Right. It's, it's almost like lifting weights, like the more weight you lift, the stronger you get. And I think that was one of the early weights that I had to lift to be stronger for the future. So you're, you're telling us stories about the transition into CEO. And, you know, I think we should shift and talk about the transition yeah. at the end. You know, I know that uh, it's been a few years now and... I hope you don't mind me saying that uh, I know from all of our conversations over the last few years that the transition was hard for you. I mean, you know me, Jerry. Like, I think when I took the job, it wasn't, I mean, maybe some people would disagree with me, but <laughs> it wasn't like this naked power grab. Like, mm -hmm. I had always wanted to be a CEO and, you know, I was in a Shakespearean way plotting my moment, you know. <laughs> um, it wasn't that at all. Like, I had, I grew to love the company. I loved the company when I joined it, but I grew to love it, you know, even more as I, as I did the work. And so I, I really felt like at that moment when I put my hat in the ring for CEO on a really basic level, I thought if you bring in someone from outside, it's, it's a, not a good time for that. And what the company needs right now is kind of uh, somebody who understands how it works, who can take, I think we even used this back then, take Humpty Dumpty and put it back together again. Yeah. Because yeah. it was much more fractured than people realized. And so I was CEO for six years, I guess almost six years. And, you know, we went public and we could do a whole series of podcasts about that. <laughs> but uh, at the end, um, you know, we'd been a public company for two years. It was a pretty rough ride. I definitely made all kinds of mistakes. But I think, you know, to talk about the pain of it, I think that I still had that mindset of service. And so like on a really basic level, if I could really pinpoint the pain, this thing that you cared about so much, like suddenly you were being told that you were the problem. And so, wow, like that, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's still painful. Yeah. Um, and so there was just that kind of emotional pain of, of that. And then I think the, you know, the company was very, you know, very much a community um, in the way that the community kind of existed outside the walls. So like it was, it wasn't just getting fired and we could talk more about that. Like I was very honest and insisted that publicly we say that I was fired, but it was more like an excommunication. 
And, and so that was really difficult. And I had, I had really firmly committed not just to Etsy, but also to Brooklyn. I was on the Dumbo Business Improvement District Board, which was unusual for a, a company. It's kind of like a board of business owners. Let me just explain that, yeah, yeah. that Dumbo refers to down under Manhattan Bridge overpass. It's a, it's a right. name for, for the area in which Etsy's headquarters were. Go ahead. Yes, thanks, Jerry. Um, so I was on that board, and it was like the guy who owned the pizza shop, the woman who owned the candy store. And so I felt very much connected to Brooklyn, you know, through Etsy. Up the street so, from Walt Whitman's press. Exactly. <laughs> um, yes, the spirit of Whitman looms large. Uh, but it was, you know, it was difficult because I was so embedded in Brooklyn that like, you know, just walking around, I saw people. And, you know, in that sense, it was hard, like, not to be, you know, part of the team and sort of being on the outside of the walls. And so, you know, it was the first time that I've been fired. Um, and even, and I, you know, I don't, I, I wouldn't say that I was like treated poorly, so I'm not, but I, I just think the experience was so rough. I mean, you have to go in and like pack up your stuff. And I, I know many people have been through that because it was so traumatic for the company. Like I agreed to go pack up my stuff like on a Thursday night when like no one was there. And so that, yeah, that was just excruciating. Tell me about the excommunication field. It's a powerful word. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, it's, well, I think excommunication is like, not like you're not, you know, welcome. You're sort of cast out. And so the, it's almost hard to explain, but I think a place that you would just kind of walk in the door and say hello to everybody that I spent so much time on that, like just physically and mentally and everything. And then to, to have that, like shut off and even on a personal level. And, you know, this, this even happens now. I think it, in some cases it creates like an awkwardness (laughs) and that awkwardness is kind of the opposite of what I used to feel, which was like ease. And so I think it felt like excommunication at the moment, but then, you know, as time has passed, you know, it's been three years now, and this has been a great learning experience for me in a lot of ways, which you could talk about, but there are people involved in Etsy who, you know, I just never heard from again. And I, I thought like, huh, I thought we had some kind of relationship. And then to be honest, there were people in the company who I didn't spend a lot of time with who sent me really moving emails. So it's, it wasn't that, but it kind of really helped me understand like, um, for, for lack of a better way to describe it, like who's, who's kind of like really got your back and like who doesn't. And, and you know, yeah. what I witnessed in watching you and being not only your coach, but your friend in that process was a kind of slow discovery and realization of the impact that you did have. I'm thinking, for example, the stories you've told 
about that Thursday night when you were packing up? Yeah. And when you say goodbye to the security guard? Yeah. Can you share that story? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, I'll never, I'll definitely never forget this. I mean, I had to, I went in front of the company because we were a public company that the, I was told on a Saturday that Tuesday was my last day and there was an earnings call Tuesday at five 30 and the market closes at four. So it's customary to kind of release news right after the market closes for lots of different reasons. And, you know, I went into an all hands and told people that, um, that it was my last day, that it was John Allspaugh's last day, our CTO. And there was a layoff and I was part of that. And then, uh, and thank God for the, some of the resilience I had developed at that point. Then I had to go to an earnings call. So I couldn't really stick around and talk to the employees. I had to basically go straight to an earnings call. And uh, because earnings calls are pretty serious business and this is pretty serious, we would always have um, one of our security guards not really guarding the room, but just kind of like standing in the hallway saying, Hey, like they're doing an earnings call. Can you like go around? So that was, uh, Kevin. And, uh, I mean, I was managing my own emotions at the time cause I had to go on an earnings call and like introduce my successor, which is a real, you know, difficult moment. But Kevin was in his usual post and saw me coming and he, he said, Hey, how's it going? Cause he hadn't heard the news. He wasn't in the all hands. And I said, you know, today's my last day. And I'll just never forget it. <laughs> like a tear, he, he started crying. Um, and uh, yeah, I was just so moved by that. And I, and I, you know, I, I was, I was actually able to compose myself for Kevin. I was like, Kevin, like, why, like, why are you so upset? Like, I've, I'm not dying or anything. And he said, he said something like, uh, he said something like, you are, you always treated us like everyone else. And so I think, um, yeah, for me, it wasn't that, that feeling of excommunication. Like it wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't really about, you know, all the fancy like CEO stuff. It was, I, that wasn't what I was missing. It was more like, you know, Kevin and uh, the the people in the company. I could I could honestly care less about investment bankers and and all that kind of stuff. Sun Valley <laughs> and Goldman yeah. Sachs conferences. Totally. Um, I kind of found those tiresome in a lot of ways, but. Uh, it was like the the collection of people that we had assembled, you know, really from top to bottom. And so uh, a number of the people I, I still keep up with are, you know, people like Kevin, people like, um, I don't want to name names and have, but right. the, the, uh, the woman who ran our cleaning service. I was who, just uh, thinking of her. Employed, um, you know, formerly incarcerated people. And so I was, in a lot of ways, thought more about like building the company for them and sort of a model of generosity around them. And, uh, honestly, like looking back as a public company CEO, the shareholders are important, 
but I don't think I, I didn't think about them as much. <laughs> and I tended to make decisions that were often did not have them first. And maybe in some cases, like way, way farther down the line. So, um, yeah, as I was, as I was leaving, I wasn't thinking about all of the sort of hot shot CEO lifestyle things that happen when you're running a company like Etsy. I was thinking about the, the people inside the company. You know, in my book, I described that, uh, the end that, 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 period. I remember that Saturday. I, I actually flew from Colorado to New York that Sunday, and we got together that Sunday night um, ahead of the Tuesday earnings call. Um, yeah. Getting a green cry. Because there was no way that I was not going to be by your side. And um, I described it as that moment in which your bearing as a CEO came forth even more. Now in, in reliving the story with you, I'm thinking back to the promise you made Nancy. And uh, you fulfilled that promise. You stayed in your core with your core beliefs, your humanity stayed there. And it may have been easy in some ways, easier to give up of that, but I think you would have lost yourself. Yeah, I mean, I, I think about that a lot. And uh, I mean, one of the things that I definitely saw as a CEO and definitely a public company CEO, you get to see up close how the machine works. Yeah. Like investors, markets, um, you know, investment bankers, the kinds of things that people come and suggest that you should do that maybe you shouldn't do. And I think that it's very easy. I can't think of a better word that's very easy to become kind of corrupted uh, because, you know, we have to do this for the shareholders or, you know, the kind of catch all, like this is just a business decision, which is often true, but often used to excuse sort of inhumane behavior. And so I think about this a lot. And I think, um, I think that, I look back on that and I, I feel like I made a ton of mistakes we could go over, but like at every moment I was trying to act with integrity and there were moments where I made conscious decisions that were less beneficial to me because I thought they were the right thing. And so now that I've been out for a few years, I feel like I definitely could have, you know, tried to make more money or done things, certain things in different ways. But, you know, I have a son who was five years old then and now is eight years old and is at an age where he's starting to understand things. And I, I feel like absolutely at peace that at any level, if I explain to him what I did, that 
I would be proud of what I did and he would be proud of what I did. That phrase at peace really, really just landed with me. Because it's clear that, you know, the pain is still there, the tenderness is still there. Um, and I was thinking about this conversation and thinking about what is it that I hope the people who listen come away with? And, and to, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, I'm really struck, for example, about the understanding and empathy and kindness you feel for our mutual friend, Fred Wilson. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as I recall it, he stood up in front of the company and he told the company that it was his decision. Yeah. <laughs> while standing next to you. Yeah. And I'm laughing because that's such a, in a wonderful way, that's such a friend thing to do. Mm-hmm. Like he did the hard job. <laughs> he fired me. And then he came and stood beside me and told everyone to blame him for firing me. And, uh, you know, I didn't like it. I, you know, my head was kind of all over the place at that time, but you know, I had total respect for that. So it wasn't, I would say one of the interesting feelings that came out of the whole experience was it's so natural to like sort of almost in a reflexive way to, you know, dislike or be upset with the person who kind of gave you the news. And I never really felt that way about Fred because he was so straight with me about it. And I'll tell another story because I think this would, this is what's remarkable about Fred. And, and I, I tell this story because I think it's, it's useful for other people in, in terms of how they think about doing business. But I got fired on Tuesday and Fred emailed me, I think it was Tuesday night said, how are you doing? And he said, uh, I'd like to take you out for a beer on sometime this week. And we can talk about anything but Etsy. (laughs) 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 And so, and Fred, you know, the all powerful Fred Wilson, who we all know and love, but if you know him as a person, he's very much a person. Fred, God knows what he had to do that day came to my neighborhood to my bar (laughs) and we had, we had a couple beers, you know, on a Thursday afternoon at like three o'clock. We were like the only people in the bar. And so, um, yeah, like I, I wish I had been able to, to be that magnanimous in some of the departures I had to manage. Um, so some of the reason I tell that story is more of like, a future aspiration even for myself. <laughs> yeah. But um but that's I think that's a story that deserves to be told because that's something that Fred didn't have to do. He didn't talk about it with or blog about it to try to make himself look good. Um he did it because it was it was just a generous thing to do. It was uh the right thing to do. You know, one of the interesting things that happened when you go through a transition like that, and this has been the most fulfilling part, and I, I feel like you were my guide on this, is it forces 
it forces you to disconnect from all these ego activities. Like, so one day I was the CEO, one day I wasn't. One day everybody's offering me tickets to all the great stuff in New York, and the next day they're not. And so it, and you gave me this really helpful advice, which was, uh, I don't remember the exact words, but it was kind of like, don't jump into anything else. Like don't attach to anything else if you can, like take it slowly and like take a break. And so, you know, like anyone else, I was getting calls for stuff like boards and other CEO jobs. And it was very tempting at the time. And I remember these conversations. I would say to you, Jerry, I would say, you know, I felt anxious. I was like, I feel like I'm like out of the game and I want to be back in the game. And you helped me kind of resist the immediate temptations to kind of lick my wounds by taking on some other prestigious position or whatever. And so like pausing and not trying to get back into the quote game made me think about what the game is that I want to play. (laughs) And it wasn't jumping back into the game when it was a game I didn't want to play would have been, I think a very costly exercise in utility. I think I would have been more frustrated, more tired, less healthy. I would have probably damaged another company because I was trying to repair something that a wound. So instead I, and this was actually an intentional thing in the pre COVID days, I isolated, (laughs) um, but I isolated in a very contemplative way and thought about like what I really want to do. And looking back, even though, some of that pain is still there. Some of the tenderness is still there. I know with absolute clarity that I don't want to try to repeat that. Like, I don't think it's something I had that experience and I don't want to do it again. And I don't think I can do it again. I'm like trying to recreate something as as special as the experience I had at Etsy. I think is, it's just, that was a moment in time. It was really great. There's this intense social pressure that happens when you leave and you, especially in, in tech, like you, you run into someone and they're like, what are you going to do next? <laughs> like, are you going to be a VC? Are you going to start a company? Like all this stuff. And that's every time. And it's hard to say, like, I have no idea. <laughs> like in right. those moments, it's, it's kind of awkward. But during that period, I thought about going to school for music. Mm-hmm. This is like three years ago. And some people I really respected and I, I still respect who I consider friends. I would say, oh, I'm thinking about going to school for music. And uh, multiple people said they were aghast and they're like, oh my God, like you would go back and start over and like mm-hmm. you would, you have all this like social capital and professional capital built up in tech. And like, you would just throw that all away. <laughs> and it got in my head. And so I decided and, you know, again, three years ago, not to do that. And so I did some other things that I think were respectable, quote, respectable for someone, you know, retiring CEO or whatever. And uh, guess what happened? During the quarantine, I decided mm-hmm. to sign up for some music classes. <laughs> and it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so... I bring this up on on this podcast because I knew what I wanted to do in a certain sense, but I didn't let myself pursue it because of the social pressure 
to be a tech person or like be a CEO or be like in the game as the phrase that I was using that I was so anxious about. So I just want people who are listening to think about that. I mean, I'm really fortunate that I had the means to take a break. Not always possible. I mean, I know what that's like. I didn't grow up (laughs) wealthy, but um, I think it's tragic, especially as you get sort of in the second half of your life to ignore those fundamental impulses of what you really want to do and what you really want to be, you know, out of deference to somebody else's idea of yeah. what you should be. I think that's the ultimate tragedy. And, uh, you know, I would argue that, uh, that phrase at peace keeps coming to mind here is that the movement towards allowing your heart to tell you who you are, what you want to be and how you want to be is an expression of that at peace. And, you know, I go back to the construct that I've, that I've often spoken about, about the movement is from heartbreak through resilience into equanimity. Yeah. Right. And what we've just in this brief little time here, been talking about the way in which you're living into the equanimity of you being, having the inner person be in sync with the outer person. Yeah. And so who you really are gets to manifest in the world. And, you know, I'll make this observation. There's a part of you that's a mentor teacher. And that I think is being lived out through your coaching. Mm -hmm. There's a part of you that is uh, an engaged activist in believing in the world and the world should be how the world should be. And that's being lived out and through, through your uh, philanthropic efforts. I know those efforts, Mm -hmm. we haven't talked about them, but I know the work you're doing for the library system in Brooklyn. And while I don't live in Brooklyn anymore, I feel really proud that my friend is a caretaker of my homeland. Yes. (laughs) And that means a lot to me to know that, that, that you're there because you see what is so special about Brooklyn. Yeah. It's the community. It's the people. Yeah. And uh, I think embedded in this entire story is an arc of, of advice and counsel. It's like two elders sitting on the park bench. And as I've often said, um, You know, this is not the path to optimization of financial wealth. No. This is is the path to optimization of happiness. Yeah. Right? And living into the promise you made your wife. Living into being available. Yeah, I mean, it's... And as I think about this whole story, I mean, one thing, you know, sort of a tragic moment for me getting fired, and you and I have talked about this a lot, I made a choice then to be public about it and, um, you know, right down to like the press release made it sound like I didn't get fired. And I edited the press release, basically said I was fired. Um, and so many people who I really respect gave me advice not to do that, not to say that I got fired, that it was going to hurt me. Um, that this was a time not to tell the truth. (laughs) Uh, and you know, I did it because I felt like it was right, but that that got into my head a little bit. I always thought about it. 
And what I found in the work that I do, and even outside the specific work I do, is that one of, it's almost like in life, the most unknowable thing is death. You can't talk to someone who's died, um, at least conventionally. <laughs> um, <laughs> so what I found in my coaching, you know, I coach all sorts of people in all sorts of situations. And the fact that in effect, like in a professional sense, I can tell you about death. It doesn't have to be a secret. Like when people work with me, they already know that. <laughs> and, you know, I had a client recently who's running a, just a blockbuster company, like one of the fastest growing companies I've ever seen, you know, IPO track and everything. He told me all the reasons he wanted to work with me. This was just last week. He told me all the reasons he wanted to work with me, you know, felt like I would understand him and like scaling and executives and all, building an executive team. And I was almost that old insecurity kicked in. And I said to him, I said, like, you know, I got fired, right? And, <laughs> and, and he said, oh, yeah, 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 of course. I knew that. Yeah, I knew that. That's not the point. And then he just kept moving. And, but what I found is that it's, it's, uh, it didn't feel like a gift. And it's hard to even describe it as a gift now, but I think that it was a gift in very unusual packaging. Yeah. 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 And in the end, maybe it wasn't the point to quote your client. The point is the experience. The point is yeah. not how did it end up because the story yeah. is still unfolding. You're not done. It is. No, no, yeah. not at all. Yeah. And that's, I think another really important thing I think for anyone listening to understand about your career, like your career we're so career focused in, in the, in our, the world we're in. It's all about career. You know, frankly, companies are the least loyal constituency in your life. Mm. <laughs> Whatever the other constituencies are, they're the least loyal. It's, I think it's pretty objective. And so I think it's healthy, honestly, to have some distance from the work you do mm. because it is not all of you. That said, I don't, I'm not suggesting distance that is alienation <laughs> mm -hmm. from the work that you do. It's more of a recognition that your job is part of a mosaic of who you are. And uh, you have to make sure that it doesn't consume your entire self because other things that are, that are more important get, can get sacrificed. Well. Wow. I don't know that I could add anything further to that. I think that was beautiful. And as always, um, it is just such a deep, deep honor and privilege to be with you. I just wanted to thank you, Jerry, because, and I've said this to you privately, but I think um, the chapter you wrote in your book about me and my departure, I've said this to you and other people who are close to me, like that is the most true thing that was written about my departure. And so I, I just treasure it as a, as a difficult moment, but a really, uh, just a really human moment. And I, I, uh, I'll never be able to express my gratitude to you for, for sharing that moment with me, but also recording it. <laughs> Your story is an incredibly important story and it needed to be shared with the world. And not only for your healing, but for the world. Um, there is a different way to lead. 
and you are in the embodiment of that. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you, my dear, dear friend. If you enjoyed this episode, go to reboot.io slash podcast to listen to all five seasons of our podcast conversations. And leave us a review on iTunes. That's the best way for other people to find and enjoy the show just as you have done. And don't forget to join our mailing list at reboot.io slash sign up so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening. How long till my soul gets it right? Did any human being ever reach that kind of light? I call on the resting soul of Galileo, king of night vision, king of insight. Reboot Your Year is our invitation to you to pause and honor the transition into this new year. This simple yet powerful five-day course will guide you through this annual transition with grace and open you to the promise and hope of the year ahead. The course unfolds through daily emails, each with a koan to consider and a guided journaling practice handcrafted by the Reboot team. Each day's practice takes less than 20 minutes to complete. We hope you'll enjoy this course so much you'll make it part of your annual practice. We've heard from many of you that you have, and you'll share it with teammates and colleagues as well. Learn how to reboot your year at reboot.io slash reboot new year.